This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. I would like you to hypothetically answer the following question. How would you live differently if you knew there was no resurrection? How would you live if there was no future life after death? Maybe for some of you it's, actually I'm doing everything I probably would do in any case. Maybe for some of you you do a lot differently. For others, this is probably a more appropriate question. Imagine, hypothetically speaking, what would life be like if there was a resurrection, if there was life after death? Maybe that's a more challenging question for you to answer as well. Maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're, you're coming in here, you're inquiring, maybe that's, maybe that's the, steep, the, the, the big jump in your mind. How would life be if there was a resurrection? Well... We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love the way that Paul phrases this. This is in the ESV, but we are of all people most to be pitied. Why are we in danger every hour? We'll we'll get to that. But I protest, brothers, he says, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So today we're in part six of our seven-part series entitled, Seven Days That Changed the World, The Journey to the Cross. And um, last week, Howard... Uh, just so poignantly, movingly, powerfully helped us see the crucifixion of Jesus and the, the, as the place where the wrath of God, the anger of God, the, the cup of wrath, as we, we heard, is poured out on Jesus because of the anger that He has about sin, the things that separate us from God. And in our place, Jesus receives the wrath of God and then Because of the cross and on the cross, Jesus offers us His own cup, the cup of salvation, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of life. And next week, excitingly, we're going to be looking as kind of the the last section about the ascension, Christ's ascension into glory, and that's very exciting. But as of today, we celebrate the empty tomb, friends. We celebrate an empty tomb. He is not here. He is risen, the Apostle Matthew writes. He is risen. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it a big deal for Christians and potentially for all of history? If we think about 
other great persons in history, maybe a Gandhi, maybe a, a Nelson Mandela from my country. Who, who's, who's the greatest English hero? Who, who would that be? Who? Wilberforce. Wow. Churchill, Wilberforce, those are great names. Uh, who's the fellow on the statue in London? Uh, Nelson, Lord Nelson, he's different to Nelson Mandela. Paul Gascoigne. We miss them. <laughs> we miss these guys. Certainly my country is currently really missing a Mandela. But we are not hoping or expecting to see them again. Certainly not in this life and on this side of eternity. So why is this such a big deal? Why does it matter? But 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years after the empty tomb of Jesus, 2.3 billion people on the earth are self-professing Christians, and they hold Easter to be the most significant day in all of history. So let's spend some time in the Scriptures, and we're going to be looking at whether we can believe what we read. Can we believe the story of Easter, the story of the empty tomb? And if so, what are the implications for us out of that? I think many people today, and you might be one of them, you think, you know, let's look at all the major religions of the world, Islam and Hinduism and, uh, and Judaism, Christianity. Surely they all just say the same thing. It's all about being a good person, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you, and so forth. It's potato, potato, tomato, tomato. It's all the same thing, surely. So, friends, the cross of Christ, the empty tomb, and the resurrection, and then His ascension, Christ's ascension into heaven, these are some of the key features that make Christianity completely different from any other world religion. And as C.S. Lewis says very famously, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Hmm. Well, with this in mind, let's read together the entire chapter, if you would, of Matthew 28. It's not so long. It's a lovely chapter. So it's always great. Haul out your Bibles. It will be behind me if you don't have one or if it's not on your, uh, on your phone. But um, your Bible is your weapon. You want it messy, full of lines, full of scribbles. You want to make it your own. So I'd always encourage people, bring your Bible along and have fun with it yourselves. Okay, but we're in Matthew 28, and we are reading from verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. We hear that everywhere. Every time an angel appears, the first words out of their mouth, do not be afraid. I think angels are frightening creatures. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. And he invites them in. Come and have a look. Then go quickly 
and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! Oh, And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, Pilate, who we saw, we will satisfy him and keep, him, uh, and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This was written about 80 AD, Matthew writing this. And you can imagine that up to this day, this, these stories, these tales, what on earth went on that day must have just been filtering around in all sorts of circles. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's just pray. Oh, Father, we love your word. We're so grateful that it is a lamp unto us, a light unto our feet. We're so grateful, Lord. Thank you that you lead us by it, you instruct us by it, you teach us by it. You help our faith. God, thank you that you glorify your Son through it. The truth, we pray, that would land in our hearts today. We pray that we would be changed, men and women, either full of faith, stronger faith, or turned away angry. But what we cannot do is be mediocre about this. Help us with that, Lord, we pray. Amen. Friends, have you ever doubted your faith? Could I, could I ask for a brave show of hands? <laughs> if you've doubted your faith. You see, friends, if you're, if you're a skeptic this morning, if you're somebody investigating, inquiring into the Christian faith, you are in good company. All of us have doubted at some point in our journey of faith. In Matthew 28 in this part is in this part of Matthew's gospel he's giving us permission to doubt i think the way that it's written the the brevity the quickness the pace of it the the move the flow even the words that he uses doesn't just give us permission but he encourages doubt which is i th i think quite interesting doubt and unbelief are not the same things we see some of his own disciples doubted. 
This is good. Doubt is a key step in shoring up your faith, in fortifying your faith if you're a believer. If you're an inquirer this morning, doubting your current beliefs is also a key step in your journey. But the reality, friends, is that our culture tells us it is inappropriate to say this is right and this is wrong. This is an absolute and this is nonsense. We, we cannot say that to one another. In the name of cultural progress and inclusivity, we've become more like the ancient world than we care to believe. Jesus, during his trial, tells Pilate that he came to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate's response, veritas, truth. What is truth? Even back then, having a notion of an absolutism, an absolute truth seemed to offend. But nobody actually lives like that. We know that. Nobody lives as if there are no absolutes. Even as an atheist, you have functionally chosen a group of beliefs that you follow and live by, and that you use as a standard to judge others, and that you consistently try to live up to. The purpose of doubt, friends, is to get us seeking the truth, wherever it may lead. Doubt gets you moving on the path to living life in line with what you believe. And I know from personal experience, and I know many of you as well, that doubt can be a very dark and painful place. But truth remains absolute, and absolute truth eventually drives out fear, wins over the hearts, it wins over anxiety, and it allows us to live a life which is consistent with the worldview that we hold. Phil Moore, who leads a church in London called, called uh, Everyday Church, he writes, Matthew wants your wholehearted faith in Jesus or your considered refusal. What he doesn't want is the dithering discipleship that so many mistake for genuine Christianity. I love it when you get a good <clears throat> in the gut. So my prayer this morning is that we find that worldview is the truth of the resurrected Christ. And that we live a life of genuine Christianity rather than dithering discipleship, to borrow a phrase from full. So the Apostle Paul is correct in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that if the resurrection is proven to be false, it all falls down. We're deceiving ourselves. We might as well go home and choose a different religion. The resurrection is the central event on which all of Christianity hinges. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to discredit the biblical and the historical account of the resurrection in an attempt to, to cause Christianity to fall on its face. The reality is many people do not like the implications of a resurrected man, God. Some say the woman and the disciples were in such grief, they must have imagined seeing Jesus. 
Jesus had maybe merely swooned on the cross. He, he wasn't actually dead. Uh, he'd only swooned. He'd only passed out. And that he then came, uh, he kind of came out of it again in the coolness of the tomb. And he then pushed aside the rock and came out and appeared. So he had the appearance of being dead, but he wasn't. The Muslims would say that, in fact, uh, although they recognize Christ as a prophet, a good man, teacher, real character of history, that he wasn't the one who hung on the cross. He wasn't the one who died, and he certainly wasn't the one who was uh, buried, and therefore resurrection is completely beside the point, because Christ wasn't involved. He was a substitute. Some say Christianity is the greatest hoax that has ever been perpetrated, um, and that the tomb was never empty to begin with. They just made it all up. But Matthew invites us to doubt, to doubt our doubts as much as doubting our beliefs. Doubt can save us from unbelief. Doubt can strengthen our faith. So what are the, the, the doubts and objections that Matthew invites us to explore. We've got a couple that we'll look at. There are, there are many that come out of this passage and, and the other accounts of Scripture, but um, let's look at a couple of them. I think, firstly, the woman. The woman is a big one. The woman are the first to find the empty tomb, and they run off to go and tell the other disciples. You see, if you're a Middle Eastern person and you hear this story for the first time, your jaw pretty much hits the floor. This is a really big deal. It's way bigger than it just seems. You see, I was an Air Force pilot for 11 years, and I left uh, where, uh, holding the rank of major. Um, and this would be like the most junior person in the Air Force, an airman, coming up saying, uh, Sir, I know for a fact, I I've seen it, that uh, somebody has just built an aircraft out of Swiss cheese and duct tape and flown around the world. And I'm thinking, no, son, it, it's not. First of all, I'm a senior guy. You are not. I, I understand this aviation game. You do not. Um, I've been around a while, and you have not. My opinion in this matter holds a lot of weight. I know about Bernoulli. You do not. It would be equal to something silly like that. The women were at the bottom of the social rankings. In fact, the women were so low that a woman was not allowed to testify in court. Their opinions, their witness was inadmissible as a woman. <laughs> so, there was no possible way that if the disciples were making up a story about the resurrected Christ, they would choose woman to be at the very center of all of this. Matthew and the other gospel writers, uh, when they were writing their, their gospels, I'm sure would have been so tempted to just change or gloss over or build in a man or two into the story in order to bring some weight and trustworthiness to this account unless it was true. The only logical explanation of this account is that it is true. 
and that it really happened the way that it's said in Scripture. Talking about many witnesses, if we use the Gospels and the Apostle Paul's list out of 1 Corinthians 15 uh, to go by, the list of people that the very much alive and well Jesus appeared to were the woman at the tomb, the men on the road to Emmaus, the 11 disciples, remember by now Jesus, uh, Judas had hung himself, and 500 other brothers, we are told. So let's say 520-odd people, 520-odd people saw the bodily resurrected Jesus. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, encourages skeptics and doubters. He says, guys, don't believe me, speak to the 520. They'll tell you. In fact, most of them are still alive today. Some of them have gone to sleep, he says, gone, uh, have died. But the others are alive, the vast majority. Talk to them. In any courtroom today, 520 eyewitnesses, all accounting for the same thing, would be called a slam dunk. Remember this, that anybody with 15 spare minutes in their day could stroll over to the empty tomb, which was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and they could see for themselves, what on earth, this is an empty tomb. And I'm sure there's no doubt that people did that. The Jewish leaders would have done that. The Roman leaders would have done that. The disciples would have done that. The average folk in Jerusalem would have done that. And all would have gone to take a look at the empty tomb. But the most important thing is not just the empty tomb. It's the combination of empty tomb plus eyewitnesses seeing the resurrected Christ. You see, empty tomb minus the witnesses just equals a stolen body. Yeah, just like they're saying. Witnesses without the empty tomb are just delusional, traumatized followers of Jesus. Shame on them. But the empty tomb plus 520 witnesses equals Jesus raised from the dead. There is no other way to account for that. So you say, why is this any different from people seeing the uh, king of rock and roll, Elvis. Why is this any different? You see, many people have reported seeing the, the king of rock and roll over the last 40 years. How is this any different from people just having sightings of Jesus? Now, my mom's sitting here, so I, and I can't lie. I've told many lies in my life. You'd probably be surprised to hear that, or maybe not. I've told many a lie in my life but never one that I'd be willing to die for. I have thought something to be true. I've really believed it to be true, but never to the point of willing to wager my life on it. You know what I mean? You've had similar experiences? See, the harsh reality is that many of these eyewitnesses do die, they're killed for the things that they claimed to have seen and what they believed. All but one of Jesus' 11 remaining disciples died horrific deaths. Beheadings, stabbed, crucified, skinned alive, stoned, beaten to death by clubs. And then we read as well 
in history about the thousands of believers, particularly under guys like Emperor Nero uh, and, and that massive persecution who are fed to lions, wild beasts, who are put up on stakes and set alight as, uh, as lampposts in Rome and who are covered in animal skins and set, up, set upon by dogs. It was rough times. Would you remain silently faithful to a lie? Or at best, would you remain silently faithful to a hopeful desire in the face of all of this? Unless there was the certainty in your heart that Christ had been raised, that He had been seen, that the tomb was empty, that He had been resurrected, and there was a certainty because of that for your own resurrection after this life. I challenge the Elvis spotter to go through all of that. You see, it leads us into another point around a radical new worldview that develops. In all of recorded history, the shifts in religious philosophy and belief systems have happened gradually. They take place over a period of time because of debate and discussion and contestment. I think case in point, uh, if you've got any uh, historical understanding on the Catholic Church, you know they've got a lot of history and how over the years, the centuries, things have shifted and molded and ebbed and flowed regarding their theology and their doctrine. Without the resurrection, friends, there is no way to account for the completely overnight radical worldview change that takes place that these early Christians lived by and died by. Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in London says, after the death of Jesus, in New York, but after the death of Jesus, the entire Christian community suddenly adopted a set of beliefs that were brand new and until that point had been unthinkable, unthinkable, overnight unthinkable beliefs, unthinkable worldview. You see, classically Jews of the time believed that there would be some form of a resurrection. They believed the body was a good thing. They believed that the resurrection would be a bodily resurrection um, almost like a physical resuscitation. Everything else would remain the same. It would just be kind of breathed life into, and the body just carries on moving again. That's kind of what they had in mind at this time in the development of Judaism. Um, the uh, Greeks of the time, which was the kind of predominant philosophy of the time, just believed that the body is bad, the flesh is a bad thing, and that they believed in a spiritual existence after death. So these new Christians believed in a bodily resurrection, but one that could walk through walls, that could appear and disappear at will, but also a body that could sit with his friends on a beach, eat fish and drink and be merry, do life. This, friends, is a radical and massive scale shift of worldview that cannot be accounted for without a genuinely earth-shattering experience like the resurrection of Christ. How could a massive group of first century Jews 
have come to worship a human being as divine. This is, this is radical. This is unthinkable blasphemy. To believe this, you are, being, you are almost guaranteed of being pushed out by your family and your friends, being ostracized socially, if not being killed. This is radical. Yet they did it in their thousands. They estimate by the time Matthew's writing this, there are 30,000 Christians in Jerusalem. How could a massive group of first century Jews who believed that God loved their nation so specifically, so uniquely, and had a plan for their nation as Israel, all of a sudden drop what they're doing and head off to the hills and preach the gospel? They preached, they baptized, they taught, they made disciples. They did everything that they claimed the resurrected Christ had commissioned them to do. Later, that we read there in Matthew 28, that passage. So as the Holy Spirit illuminated the Old Testament Scriptures and helped them to remember the things that Jesus had said, these disciples were able to take, assimilate all of these things into this Dramatic new philosophy, worldview, doctrine, this Christianity. And the disciples were so overtaken by the love of God through Christ's death for them on the cross that they literally set sail, forsaking their previous lives to do what He'd commissioned them and commanded them to do. Such was the depth of Christ's sacrifice for them. And for the freedom and the joy that they'd experienced, that they could do no other but spend their lives in grateful worship, in obedience to this great commission. And to live according to these new beliefs that they now, because of the resurrection, knew to be definitively true. And this is a response which, in many cases, cost them their lives. This new doctrine, this new worldview had the result of completely changing what they believed and because of that, how they lived. And they died, uh, how they lived and died, being disciples and disciple makers into all the world. And I, I want to highlight that phrase, into all the world. That is a radical mind shift for a Jew. I want to highlight some of the places that, uh, that the... Uh, Apostles ended up going to. Simon Peter, crucified upside down in Rome. James, beheaded in Judea, which isn't that far. Philip, scourged and crucified in Egypt. Bartholomew, skinned alive and beheaded in India. Doubting Thomas, now so full of courage and certainty, stabbed to death in India. James, stoned and beaten to death in Jerusalem. James was, uh, ended up being the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Simon the Zealot, a zealot indeed, crucified in London. Andrew, scourged, crucified in Greece. I discovered that photograph yesterday when we were visiting in the Gloucester Cathedral. There it is, Andrew. Thaddeus, crucified in Edessa, either Edessa, Turkey, or Edessa, Greece. Matthew, the tax collector, stabbed in the back and died in Ethiopia. 
John, <laughs> the Apostle John, is the only one who quietly dies an old age life uh, on e- in exile on the island of Patmos, one of the Greek islands. In a letter to uh, a guy called Diognetus, which is age dated kind of between 80 and 200, they're not sure when this letter was written, but it says this, Don't you see them exposed to wild beasts for the purpose of persuading them to deny the Lord? Yet they are not overcome. Don't you see that the more of them that are punished, the greater the number of the rest becomes? This does not seem to be the work of man. This is the power of God. These are the evidences of His appearance. some radical implications for us if this is true. I think placing your faith in Christ, the resurrected Son of God, is not merely like trying to catch the wind or catch a moonbeam in your hand. Faith is reasoned. It's logical. It's historical. It's philosophically harmonious. Isn't that a great word? The evidence of its truthfulness is staggering if we care to look for it. O inquirer of the Christian faith, there is good reason to doubt your unbelief. Search, follow the evidence wherever it may lead you. O believer, there is good reason to doubt your doubt and to let it fortify your faith. Romans 1.4 in the message says this, His unique identity as Son of God was shown by the Spirit when Jesus was raised from the dead, setting Him apart as the Messiah, our Master. Matthew encourages you to doubt. He encourages you to doubt so that the, at the end of the story, you have searched for truth and have come to one conclusion, one reasoned clear path ahead. Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Follow Him as the resurrected Lord of all, the Master. One of my favorite sections in all of the Bible is found in this passage. And it's called the Great Commission, which is a mission statement from the risen Christ. And it's, it's an encouraged standard of living for us who would call ourselves believers and disciples of Jesus. And I'm going to paraphrase as we go, but please do put it up behind me. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The same authority and power given to Jesus, our Master, when He was raised from the dead, is placed upon us who believe by faith. That same authority, that same power. Therefore, the same mission and mandate of Christ Himself, is placed upon us as well, to go into all the world and proclaim the good news that Jesus is alive. Proof positive that sin, the horrible things that that we do think, believe, our attitudes that separate us from a holy, perfect God, is forgiven. It's done away with. It's removed from those who put their trust in Jesus as Master. The penalty for that sin was placed on Jesus at the cross and paid fully. Ours is the privilege 
to help others encounter the living God and forever be changed by that encounter and become faithful followers of Jesus themselves. By being baptized and by helping others to get baptized, we submerge ourselves, not only in water, but in truths and the identity of Christ, who He is, and the love with which He is loved by the Father and cherished by the Father is ours as well. And this, friends, is not a temporary state of affairs. No, no. This is a promise as solid as the resurrection itself that God will hold you and keep you and sustain you through life and through death until He comes again. I told you, I love this passage. John Piper, good old Uncle John, he says, If there is no resurrection... What makes sense is middle-class moderation to maximize earthly pleasures. Friends, let's not give in to short-term temptation. Middle-class moderation. Maximized earthly pleasures. We do not merely think about today as if there was no eternal destiny. We do not merely eat and drink and sleep around and steal and lie and cheat our way to the top. And then, at best, hope for a painless death on our beds one night as an old person, which just ends in darkness. The thankfulness, friends, the gratitude for what Jesus has done on our behalf is the reason why Paul says, Why are we in danger every hour, spending ourselves, giving our best, putting our lives on the line for the sake of God's glory and His mission? Moving from South Africa to the Netherlands here to beautiful Cheltenham to help people come to see and know the resurrected Christ. We do things like that taking up a job in a tough workplace, spending yourselves for the sake of the people that you're working for, that they might come to know the love, grace of the resurrected Christ. That is not a wasted life. Going off to London, planting new churches there to help the people of London know God more and love Him and worship Him in response to the truth of who He is. Spending yourselves on behalf of your children or the, the other people's children, maybe as a teacher or a helping with kids' work on a Sunday, for the sake of these truths being established in their hearts, this is not a wasted life, friends. These and many others are great endeavors of worship that all celebrate the truth of the resurrected Jesus in our lives. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 30 to 32 and 20, in that order. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I protest, brothers, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Maybe that takes on a different meaning now all of a sudden. If the dead are not raised, let us just eat and drink, party on, for tomorrow we die. But... In fact, Christ has been 
raised from the dead. We are not afraid of what may come. We are not afraid of who may come. Because of the empty tomb, our eternal lives are secure in the hands of a loving and living resurrected Son of God. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.